Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. What is up, Nets world? We're back here on the Believe in Nets podcast on the Believe Podcast Network. As always, I'm your host, Eric Slater, Brooklyn Nets beat reporter for ClutchPoints.com. It's been another rough few days for the Nets. Interesting few days. Also an interesting few days for myself. As many of you may have heard, I was was in a pretty rough car accident on the way back from the arena after the Nets lost to the New York Knicks on Tuesday. It was actually captured on a Twitter spaces, which is pretty crazy timing. I was driving home on the FDR, car behind me, hit the guardrail on the left side, lost control, came across, just drilled me. Thankfully, though, I'm okay. No injuries. I was back the next day covering the Nets back last night to recap another loss against the Minnesota Timberwolves. So that's now two losses since I last potted about the Nets. And things, you know, not many things are trending in the right direction. The Nets blew a nine-point fourth quarter lead against the Knicks on Tuesday. That marked their fourth blown lead of nine points or more in their last seven games. And they come back last night. They're down by seven against the Minnesota Timberwolves entering the fourth quarter. They make a nice rally to come all the way back. But Mikhail Bridges misses a pair of free throws with two seconds remaining. That would have sent it to overtime. So this is now 17 losses in the Nets' last 21 games. They're 25th in offense, 19th in defense during that span. They're not getting consistent production from just about anybody on the roster. And the trade deadline's approaching. And that's what we're going to be talking about on this episode. We're going to have Mike Scotto from Hoops Hype, national NBA insider with good ties to the Nets on to talk about the team's trade deadline plans. But just before the interview, you know, touching on what's going on with the Nets right now, as I said, 4-17 and 17 over their last 21, not getting consistent production from about anybody on the roster. And that's coming with the trade deadline approaching and a lot of questions and uncertainty surrounding this roster. When you look at the Nets, they have veterans in – Dorian Finney-Smith, Royce O'Neal, Spencer Dimwitty. There's been a lot of trade conversations surrounding all three of those guys, Dimwitty and O'Neal, impending free agents. Finney-Smith, obviously a guy that's going to be very sought after on the market. Then you also got Nick Claxton, who's going to be an unrestricted free agent this summer. His name has been floated in trade conversations. You even have a guy like Cam Thomas, who is leading the Nets in scoring this season, but his role has remained pretty volatile and inconsistent, and the Nets are going to be entering potential extension talks with him this summer. Who knows how that's going to go? So could all of that uncertainty be impacting the way their Nets are playing? Logically, you would think that it would have at least some impact because a lot of guys, you know, they don't know what their future holds with this team. I think a good example of that is Spencer Dinwiddie. He's probably the best example, a guy who was an engine of the Nets offense after Ben Simmons went down earlier this season, and also last season after he was acquired at the trade deadline. And his play has fallen off a cliff as of late, and that's led to some questions about his buy-in. Over his last 16 games, he's averaging around 10 points and four assists. He's attempting only eight shots per game. Just wrote an article about this, and I looked up some of the numbers. His involvement and engagement with the offense has been glaringly different and down compared to where it was earlier this year. Over those last 16 games, averaging eight drives per game, Spencer's drive and kick you know, offense was a big spark to the Nets earlier this season. The Nets were playing their best basketball when he was doing that at a high level. And I said averaging eight drives per game over his last 16 appearances. Last season after he was acquired by the Nets, he was averaging 16 per game. So a very telling number in regards to where his engagement is at. He's had some interesting quotes, and you know he's the most glaring example. I'm not questioning other people's buy-in or necessarily even his. I'm just saying that 
this trade speculation, all this uncertainty could have a trickle down effect on some of the guys on the roster who were involved in those conversations. And it's something that I asked Jock Vaughn about last night after the Minnesota loss. And this is what he had to say. We're two weeks away from the trade deadline now, and obviously it's a team with some question marks, some guys who are being mentioned in rumors. Do you get a feeling that that's something that could be weighing on this team, you know, a lot of guys with uncertainty? Eric, I acknowledge it to the group in all honesty. I, I just like being transparent, and I told these guys, this is the nature of our business. That's what we do. Uh, for some guys, it's going to be harder just because either they haven't been traded, they're not used to their names being in um, uh, in rumors. That's, that's the world we live in. There, there's so many sites that you can go on. You, you got your, your phone with you, you know, 24-7. Uh, you got a job. Either play for the name on the front or play for the name on the back. So playful name on the back, make your kids, your mom, your aunt proud of you, that you have pride when you go out on the floor. Play for the name on the front. On the first and 15th, you get a check. You have a job. This is an unbelievable career. Play as hard as you can. I acknowledge that to the group. That's the world we live in. It might affect some dudes more than others, though. I agree with that, Eric. So you heard it there from Jock Vaughn, you know, acknowledging it to the group. This is a group that has a lot of guys that are involved in potential trade conversation. It's a group that's not playing good basketball right now, you know, anywhere near consistently. So obviously it's not, you know, unreasonable to assume that some of those conversations could have some effect on this roster and some of the guys that they had been accustomed getting consistent production from last season. And at points earlier in this year, when they were playing some good basketball, they were 13 and 10 through 23 games. So what direction do the Nets go? Are they buyers? Are they sellers? Are they something in between? Are they looking to make a move? Are they looking to gather assets and collect for a lot of these guys on this roster? All that remains to be seen. But Mike Scotto, one of the best guys in the business to talk about that, have a full interview with him after the theme music. I'm joined now by the guy you want to know at the trade deadline, the guy with the intel, the Paisan of the podcast, Mike Scotto. How are you, man? What's up, brother? Happy to see you doing well after you became a viral sensation when we were on Twitter spaces. Yeah, rough night the other night, but thankfully I'm okay. I got about 100 text messages after that, but Nothing all right. Than, I got to go, guys. I got to go. <laughs> Guys, I gotta go. My friends were texting me after that, and it was like, there's like this meme of SpongeBob, and it's like, I'm a head out, guys, and it's like that was that was like me in that one. So rough night, but that that seemed like a good, you know, a good encapsulation of how the Nets season has gone thus far. You know, we're we're entering rough times with the Brooklyn Nets. They're four and seventeen over their last twenty one games, eleventh in the East, twenty fifth in offense, nineteenth in defense during that span, and obviously facing a litany of questions with the trade, de trade deadline approaching, obviously in an interesting situation because they don't have their picks. Those are all going to Houston, so they don't have any incentive to bottom out. But they're also not anywhere near contention with this group. So there's an extremely wide range of outcomes for this team at the deadline. You could picture it being anywhere from a fire sale to they make a big move and try to make a splash. So you're in the know, you know all this stuff. In your eyes, are the Nets buyers or are they sellers or are they something in between ahead of the deadline? I guess in theory, when you look at the Nets, you can make the case for both. But right now, the, the best player on the market, I would say, is DeJounte Murray. So I don't really know if they 
I think there's a scenario where they could, if they want to get involved, go for him. But, you know, as I reported on Hoopside, they haven't wanted to give up the the two first-round picks that Atlanta's looking for. Now, other teams, you know, including the Knicks, are of that mindset as well. But, you know, the Lakers, they're willing to offer one in 2029. You got D'Angelo Russell's contract and Jalen hood Shafino, who they're essentially marketing as a second first-round pick because he was just drafted in the first round of this draft and in this rookie class. But the biggest caveat to that is Atlanta doesn't want to take on D'Angelo Russell and they're trying to find a third team. I, I talked with Yovan Buha on the Hoopside podcast about a couple of teams that could make some sense. Maybe Washington, you know, Charlotte's a team that's open to taking on contracts for uh, picks and other teams with cap space uh, that Yovan mentioned was the Detroit Pistons or the Detroit Pistons and the San Antonio Spurs. But for the Nets right now, I'm focusing on three guys, Dorian Finney-Smith, Royce O'Neal, and Spencer Dinwiddie. With Dorian Finney-Smith, as I've reported, they wanted the equivalent of two first-round picks. Royce won ideally, although I think for Royce, it would, most teams would probably like to do multiple second-rounders. We'll see if that moves the needle for Brooklyn. And with Spencer Dinwiddie, uh, you know, he's had a, a varying role with this team. And, and in the eyes of executives around the league, before the other night, uh, he's pretty much been absent in fourth quarters for the Nets. And so that's leaving other teams around the league to believe that he can be available ahead of the trade deadline coming up here on February 8th. Yeah, and when you're looking at the Nets potentially looking to – gather some draft capital and recoup assets. I've said for a while, and it's no secret that their trade deadline was going to center on their veterans and or impending free agents, which is obviously, like you said, Spencer, Royce O'Neal, um, Dorian Finney-Smith, not a free agent, but in that conversation, Nick Claxton has been a guy who's been mentioned on the fringes in that conversation. When you're looking at you know those different players, I think Dorian Finney-Smith is the one that is most re realistically looking at potentially being moved and may garner the most value. You're saying the Nets are looking for two first-round picks or the equivalent of two first-round picks in a ret in return for him. With what you're hearing, what's the appetite, the market around the league, and is that a price that realistically they could look to to actually get in return for him? Well, I think there's caveats to both sides. So if you're rival teams. In theory, can you get to two sec two first round picks? In theory, but you probably have to heavily protect them uh, if you were going to do that, where they don't necessarily convey. I don't know if Brooklyn would want to do that, but essentially, the equivalent of two first round picks means, in theory, one first round pick, and then you know maybe a young player or a rotation style player uh, in return. So there's different ways they can do it. I would say. When you look at the Nets and the trade candidates they have, Dorian Finney-Smith, outside of a Mikhail Bridges who they're not making for sale at this point, I would argue that Dorian Finney-Smith has the most interest from teams around the league on the Brooklyn Nets roster right now. Yeah, when you're looking at the guys that they have available, you know, Dorian is a guy who could – his skill set obviously is one that a lot of contenders are going to be looking for that will mesh easily with a lot of teams. He you know, can shoot the three at a high level, struggling a little bit as of late. But even with 
know, some glaring recent struggles, still around 38% on the highest volume of his career. Through those shooting struggles, he's kept his defense at a very high level, held Paul George and Kawhi Leonard to extremely modest shooting numbers in that game Sunday, the loss to the Clippers in Los Angeles. And he's a guy that, you know, when teams are looking for, you know, people that they're going to trade, they're looking for matching salaries on a very team-friendly contract. He's making around 13 or 14 million this year around the same next season before a player option in 2025, 26. Are there any teams in particular that you've heard linked to him or you think would make sense that may try to make a strong push for him with the playoffs coming up? I mean, there's a, there's a bunch of teams, but I would say some that have gotten out there, you know, the Los Angeles Lakers, I touched on it on the podcast with Yovan Buha on Hoops Hype. Um, I don't know if they have enough, but we'll see if they maybe try to do something bigger. Um, just essentially what I would say in a roundabout way are teams that are playoff teams slash contenders are looking at him as a, as a piece that can really fortify a bench and be a guy that can help add depth ultimately to a team that's trying to contend for a championship or a team that's looking to make some noise in the playoffs and go further than they did last season. And continuing on the theme of the Nets potentially being sellers with some of those other guys, obviously Royce O'Neal and Spencer Dimwitty are the other veterans. Mm -hmm. O'Neal is a guy who it's been reported that, you know, they're, they were looking for a first round pick in return for him dating back to last season. He's been a, a fixture in trade conversations really since the Nets acquired him in the 2022 off season. And then Spencer Dimwitty, as you said, a guy who, was playing some pretty high-level basketball earlier in the year after Ben Simmons got injured. And as of late, the production has really fallen off a cliff, and that's led to questions about his buy-in, you know, things along that line. Over the last 16 games, averaging around 10 points and four assists, shooting 38%. He's averaging eight drives per game during that span. Last season after he was acquired, he was averaging around 16 drives per game. So really a good you know, a good image of his involvement and his engagement in Brooklyn's offense. And, you know, you and me have heard responses that Spencer's given in the past about the Nets core, who he expects to be with the team moving forward. He has notably omitted himself from that conversation at several points. The latest example was after the Knicks loss, when he said that, you know, the team has guys that they're going to be building around and that his clutch play and his other stuff is in the past. And it's not, you know, what's happening right now. So when you look at Spencer and Royce, what do you see the market as being for them? Do you see them as guys who could realistically go out there and garner the nets, anything, you know, significant asset wise? Well, I'll start with Spencer. I think with Spencer Dinwiddie, when you look at other point guards that are available on the market, it, there's certainly other tiers. You've got DeJounte Murray is probably the top guy in my opinion. Then you have, I would say Tyus Jones, as a guy that Washington is looking for a first round pick for ideally. Um, and so I don't know if they're going to be able to get it, but it's something they're looking for right now. And so then where does Spencer Dinwiddie fall in that equation? I think regardless of how you feel about his recent play, generally around the league, he's viewed as a guy that can be a playoff rotation piece on a team and that ultimately him having an expiring contract is no worthy and flexible. So for me, um, I see if, if 
depending, I, I think it's going to start really the dominoes with him for DeJounte Murray. And uh, you're going to have to go from there first and then down to Tyus, then to split between Tyus Jones and Spencer Dinwiddie for me uh, when you're looking around the league as far as guys that could really kind of move the needle um, at this point thus far. And, and you know, you mentioned also about Royce O'Neal with Royce, similar to Dorian Finney-Smith. Everybody right now is kind of surveying that market to see which kind of wing players are going to become available and truly at at what cost. For Dorian being on, excuse me, for Royce O'Neal being on an expiring contract, um, it lessens the price for him a little bit. And, you know, again, if a team gave a highly protected first, I really think the Nets would consider it. But again, I don't think teams want to go that far yet. You know, it could be a scenario where he gets multiple second round picks and then the Nets have to decide if that's worth it to them or not. Or do you keep Royce down the line? And, you know, I've mentioned this before, just food for thought. He's good friends, very good friends with Donovan Mitchell. So if you keep him on the roster past the deadline and you're looking down the road at trying to make a swing at him in the offseason, doesn't hurt. In Royce's case, Mark Stein reported on his Substack last week that um, a front office executive had told him that the Cavaliers have Royce on their list of trade targets ahead of this year's deadline. And obviously, his relationship with Donovan Mitchell, with the Cavs trying to pitch him on an extension, could be a factor there. So, yeah, with Royce, it really seems like a guy who the Nets maybe could, like you said, be deciding – you know, looking at potentially multiple second round picks and salary fillers as compared to a first round pick and them kind of weighing, is that worth it versus a guy that we want to keep on the roster moving forward if we want to remain competitive. In Dinwiddie's case, you know, you're talking about the point guard market. The Heat and the Hornets just swung a deal for Terry Rozier, obviously got sent to Miami. And he's a guy who's making a similar number to Dinwiddie, not an expiring contract, but similar number playing at a much, much higher level than Dinwiddie this season. And he went for Kyle Lowry and a 2027 first-round pick. So if the market for Terry Rozier is a salary filler and one first-round pick, and he's been unquestionably playing at a much higher level than Spencer Dinwiddie this season, I think that that could give a glimpse into what the market potentially could look like for Spencer Dinwiddie. And in Dinwiddie's case, could be a piece where – more so than the Nets looking for what they get back for him, they could be looking at him as a salary filler that could get them involved in other deals. And I think that this is a good segue into the DeJounte Murray conversation that you brought up earlier because, like you said, the Hawks and the Lakers have been involved in trade conversations involving Murray. Murray's seen as the, the most high-level player who is going to be potentially on the move at this year's deadline. And the snag in those conversations has been – the finding a third team for D'Angelo Russell because you reported that Atlanta doesn't want to take on any money past this season. They want to clear Murray's money off their books ahead of next season. So I wrote an article a couple of weeks ago, and that kind of presents two paths for the Nets of ways that they can get involved with this. The first being they can look to beat out Los Angeles's offer, which is going to center on their 2029 first round pick and Russell and potentially other stuff. Or they could look to be that third team who takes on Russell in return for Dinwiddie, allowing the Hawks and Lakers to facilitate the trade. So obviously the difference there would be for Russell, they're probably looking at 
giving up no draft capital and potentially even getting something in return versus going for Murray where they're probably going to have to give up likely multiple first round picks. Are either of those situations, do you think, palatable for the Nets? And which direction would you see them going in if they were to get involved? I would say, are they are they plausible? Yeah, I mean, in theory, they're plausible for the Nets, but they haven't shown a willingness, like as I mentioned earlier, to give up two firsts for DeJounte. So I don't think straight – unless they change that stance um, – I don't know if I see that yet. They have Spencer Dinwiddie's contract that they can use to to fulfill that requirement for Atlanta. And it could, in theory, be just a two-team trade in that sense and make it less complicated than what the Lakers would have to do. As far as getting involved as a third team potentially for taking on D'Angelo Russell in a three-team deal that would net DeJounte Murray as a Laker and – you know, probably Dimwitty to the Hawks and then, uh, you know, pick. For the Nets, what are they getting out of it? And who are they getting it from? Because if the Lakers are given the 2029 pick to the Hawks, are the Nets going to do something for a second round pick or two? I don't see how that really moves the needle. So that's to me where it gets a little bit complicated and they would just have to decide ultimately – if a couple of things with D'Angelo Russell in that scenario, one, are you comfortable with him opting into his player option next year when you have to pay Nick Claxton free agency? And two, if he declines and becomes an unrestricted free agent, what are you willing to pay to keep him? And if he goes off the books, then you're in total search of a point guard going forward, looking ahead to next year. So I don't know if I would say either scenario is ideal. I mean, on paper, certainly DeJounte Murray would make the team better now. But given the, the, I would say, tailspin that the Nets have been on the past 20 games as we're recording this, what incentive or what validity do you see from this group that one player is totally going to shift things going forward? You're currently outside of the play-in. And even if you got a guy and you you got into the play-in, where is that getting you ultimately in the grand scheme of things? I think for the Nets, this is a needle-moving point where you really got to decide going forward without the Houston picks, how are you going to try to build around Mikael Bridges if you're them? And I think a bigger question that, they don't seem to be willing to say yes to right now would be, do you move Mikhail Bridges and just go all in on a full rebuild and get as many draft picks and really start this thing over? But they believe right now that Mikhail Bridges is a part of the solution. So again, I don't think either scenario is ideal. What could maybe move the needle for DeJounte Murray is if they move Dorian Finney-Smith and let's say you get back a pick and a player or if you get two and they're lottery protected or something like that, do you then take that extra pick that you had and use it for DeJounte? You could. I don't know if that's going to, you know, 
whet their appetite, as they would say, to, to do so. But these are all the uh, palpable, plausible, whatever adjective you want to say, potential scenarios that they're going to have to go through within the next couple of weeks before the trade deadline. That's the conversation, that last point that you just made that I feel like is really relevant because Brian Windhorst was quoted a week or two ago talking about the Nets' intentions ahead of the deadline, a guy who's been in the know with the Nets and said that they're expected to be buyers throughout the NBA. And obviously that you know incited a response. And my response to that was that you, know, you can be a buyer, you can be a seller, you can be a buyer while you're a seller. You can look to move things around and do a retool as opposed to a rebuild and you know, digging in deeper to this DeJounte Murray conversation, the it for me, ideally, the intrigue surrounding Murray always centered on him being a guy who is a high level player who fits a need for the Nets, who could potentially be had at a discounted price. And to mm-hmm. me, that was Spencer Dimwitty and something along the lines of maybe one first round pick. As I think Bobby Marks floated that as a potential price on the podcast with you a couple of weeks ago. But You've done some great reporting as of late that indicates that the Hawks are looking for two first round picks. And, you know, it's getting to a point where is that a wise move, as you said, for a team that right now is frankly looking like one of the worst teams in the league over these last 21 games? Are they in a position where they can be giving up two first round picks for a guy like DeJounte Murray? And then obviously also all first round picks aren't created equal. Everybody just likes to throw the term first round pick out there. There's some first round picks that are protected. There's some that are coming from teams that are very good. There's some coming that teams from suck that suck. There's some in the future. There's some closer. The Nets premium picks are regarded as their 27, 2027, 2029 picks from Phoenix and Dallas, as well as their own picks that far out, all of which are unprotected. The Lakers are potentially offering up their 2029 first round pick, presumably unprotected for a guy like DeJounte Murray. So the Nets aren't going to get into those conversations offering, you know, their or likely offering their lower level first round picks. So are they willing to part with, you know, those premium picks in return for a guy like DeJounte Murray, who's a good player, but not a huge needle needle mover for a team that finds itself outside the play in right now? It doesn't seem all that likely. Now, like you said, could they move a guy like Dorian Finney-Smith, look to get a pick there, package that with something else and go for Murray? Not out of the realm of possibilities, but you know, it's, it's a tough proposition for a team that's struggling the way the Nets are. And just when you're looking at Murray's situation, he's averaging 21 points and five assists this season, 47, 39, 84 shooting splits. It's making 18 million, so near an exact match to Spencer Dimwitty this season in terms of salary. But then he's entering next season. He's beginning a four-year, $114 million contract. Bobby Marks has reported he's got a $13.4 million trade kicker that's going to add $3.4 million to his salary for the first three years of that deal. So you're looking at a guy who I think his cap hit, if the Nets were to trade for him next year, is going to be around $28 million. The Nets are going to be looking to avoid the luxury tax to stay out of the repeater tax. They have Nick Claxton, who they want to sign to an extension. That's going to complicate a lot of things, taking on a player in Murray who makes that much. So to me, all of those factors involve them you know, not likely wanting to part with their premium picks, multiple first-round picks in return for a guy like Murray. The financial component of it has pointed to more, them more logically being involved as a third team potentially, you know, as the team taking back D'Angelo Russell. And you did a good job laying out the positives and negatives of all that. 
you know, Russell has a player option for $18.7 million next season. So they'd essentially be swapping Dinwiddie for Russell, maybe getting back like a second round pick in that scenario, you know, probably not something all too significant as a sweetener from Los Angeles for helping them, for them helping facilitate the deal. Now, where does that get you? Not very far, you know, I would say. D'Angelo Russell is, I think, a better player than Spencer Dinwiddie, but is he a needle mover for this team? Not, you know, in a anything significant context. But you and me have watched Spencer Dinwiddie play over the last three weeks. You, we've heard his comments. I just touched on those. He's not a guy who sounds like it's all that likely that he's going to be on this team moving forward. And he sounds like a guy who knows that. And in that scenario, although Ben Simmons' grand return is potentially approaching, but we know Simmons' availability in recent seasons is well chronicled on this podcast and numerous others. If Dinwiddie's out the door, somebody's got to be in the door. I've, I've said this. I said this with you on the podcast, I think, two or three months ago when we were talking about this. The Nets need a point guard. You know, it's, it's evident with Spencer Dinwiddie playing at this low of a level right now where their offense is going to be at if they don't have a point guard, which they really haven't for these last, you know, two or three, even pushing close to a month now. D'Angelo Russell, you know, great player. No, decent player, I'd say. He's averaging 17 and six this season, 48, 42, 78 shooting splints. Interestingly, he's been on a tear as of late, you know, leading right up to the trade deadline. He's averaging 20. I don't think he wants to be moved. Yeah, it doesn't seem, it doesn't seem like he does. And I'll say this just on D'Angelo, any team that gets him, the flip side, if he does opt into his player option, is you have that salary slot on an expiring contract to trade over the offseason and up to the trade deadline next season. We'll do some flexibility. So that's something to keep in mind. And, you know, Ben Simmons is going to be an expiring 40-something million dollar contract next year, which from a business perspective, forget anything about the player is movable. What's, you know, obviously D'Angelo Russell's player option, as I said, $18.7 million next season is, you know, a, a significant component in this conversation. Do you have any sense of what his market could look like? And is he expected? It's way too early to, to, to suggest what it would be now. We, we haven't even gotten through the trade deadline. I, it's hard to say. Do you think the expectation is that he would pick up that player option or is it too, too early to tell? I think as of today, you can – I mean, on one hand, you can make the case, yeah, but on the other hand, look at the way he's played leading up to the trade deadline. The guy's been on fire and boosted his value. Yeah. Over over his last seven games, at 27.4 points, 6.4 assists, 50, 54% from the field and 53% from three. So he's he's on a little bit of a heater right now. Absolutely. Yeah, and – yeah, and that you know, getting in that just gets into the conversation with the Nets of even if you were to opt out of that player option, if all you're doing is swapping Dinwiddie for Russell and maybe getting back a second round pick in return, Dinwiddie is an unrestricted free agent this offseason. It doesn't seem like he has a future with the Nets. So you could argue, you know, what are you losing in that scenario? You know, are you getting back a guy who's playing at a much higher level? And even if he is to opt out and be an unrestricted free agent. You're just you're getting a rental for the half of this year of a guy who's playing at a higher level than Dimwitty is, you know. And it's an interesting conversation with Dimwitty. You reported a little bit about you know the Nets having preliminary extension talks with him early this season. Just what did you hear 
went down in those talks and how did that factor into where the situation is now? Yeah, just very brief potential short-term stuff. Wasn't going to move the needle for Spencer Dinwiddie. And so then when he came on the Hoops High podcast before the regular season started, he touched on the fact that, you know, if this was it for him, then he'd leave the Nets in a better place, you know, after coming here and he'd still be a fan. He knew that the writing would be on the wall then if they didn't want to commit to anything long-term. And with Ben Simmons at the time, the Nets were trying to give him the keys to the point guard position and make him the focal point of the team. And that lasted a handful of games, maybe slightly more than that. And so now if you're the Nets, even if he comes back, you can't trust that Ben Simmons I'm referring to. You can't. So just given over the past three years, his in- injury history is too much. And so you then have to figure out, okay, like you touched on, who's your point guard going forward? Because if you're not bringing back Spencer, then what's, are you doing a short-term fill? Are you trying to do it through the draft? Are you doing it through a trade for D'Angelo Russell or DeJounte Murray? A lot of chess pieces on the table that still need to be moved. And they're going to need a point guard just for the second half of this season. I mean, you talk about going forward, obviously they're going to need to find one. But if they trade Dinwiddie, which seems like it's overwhelmingly trending in that direction, mm-hmm. that's why I said I think, you know, Murray, the them being, them being priced out of Murray, you know, logically – leads me to believe that Russell could be the more likely option because they just need a guy for the second half of this year to avoid giving, if they you know are hoping to avoid giving Houston one of the top five or six picks in the draft. So, you know, outside of Russell, is there anybody on the point guard market that you could see them sniffing around on? I don't think Tyus Jones would necessarily be a fit for them because he's on an expiring contract also. So, Tough defensive um, fit also next to – not that D'Angelo Russell's a great defender, but, you know, <laughs> I guess it's a tough defensive fit either way next to Cam Thomas, but go on. Well, the Nets don't exactly have the best record since Cam Thomas has gone to the bench. What What is it, Eric? Two and 13. Two, two and 13, actually. Yeah, I think it's two, two and 13. 13. As of this recording, so, um, you know, that's just <laughs> – that's that's as much a hot topic as anything. And forget, you know what? We talk about all the trade stuff and things like that. How about the guys on the roster? Like, to me, when Cam Thomas went to the bench, he was the team's leading scorer. And now, you know, they've had times where they struggle offensively. And, you know, I just don't – it's been interesting to see his minutes go down and fluctuate. I, I could – understand why if you're cam thomas you would be a little upset with that given the way you score the ball and you know he's moved the ball more as a playmaker i think in terms of averaging more than four assists over the past few games and whatnot so we'll see if it translates to more minutes for him but i think for the nets uh if they're going to win more games in a way i think he needs to have more minutes i think that's a fair conversation it's a fair point by you because you know if they want to win more games he has to have more minutes you're talking about from a developmental standpoint what they're doing right now isn't resulting in winning anyway so you might as well play the guy and you know let him play through some struggles the the point that i made when cam came out of the starting lineup was i thought that he should be starting 
just given the fact that Spencer Dinwiddie's 30 and frankly doesn't look too invested in the team moving forward. It does put the Nets in a difficult position because Cam, although he's made some improvements as of late, he's not anywhere near a high level playmaker. But, you know, you're looking at a guy that I said, even if he's not in the starting lineup, his just his minutes and his role need to remain consistent. And they haven't. And frankly, that's not exclusive to Cam Thomas. Not many players on this roster have had their role and minutes remain consistent outside of Mikhail Bridges and Nick Claxton. If you're talking about a closing, you know, in terms of closing games, that scenario has just been a complete, you know, shuffling over the last two weeks. It's been, you know, just a rotation of things. I think that's contributed to some of their late game struggles. And that's at the worst fourth quarter net rating in the league over their last, over this four and 17 stretch over the last 21 games. But interesting that you touched on Cam Thomas, two guys that I want to touch on before rounding out the episode. One is Cam Thomas. One is Nick Claxton. Obviously Claxton is entering unrestricted free agency. There's been you know, a conversation around would the Nets have the appetite to pay him a contract, which is looking like it could be $20 million plus. What do you see from him? It seems like trade speculation surrounding him has cooled off. Do you see him as a guy who's even going to be put on the table or do you see him as a guy that they're looking to extend and maybe make a decision on him later? If you're the Nets, you have to listen to everything at this point. What I would say is for Nick Claxton, I've reported this before on Hoopsite, but they've given off the indication that they are going to pay him uh, this offseason. Quite frankly, you can't lose him as an asset for nothing. So you can always pay a guy, and then if you decide to flip him later in a trade, you can do that. But uh, for all intents and purposes, Nick Claxton has played well this year. Um, find it I find it ironic, but ever since we did the – he and I did an interview, and when he said he wanted to stay with Brooklyn, his numbers have gone up pretty significantly. Um, so I, I I thought that was an interesting correlation. And uh, I think ultimately, you know, right now, if you're a team that is considering trading for him, you'd probably, you know, you'd uh, – he only signed a two-year deal. That's That's part of the issue too. So before that, so in terms of like bird rights and whatnot, things get a little trickier there. I think for Nick, as of today, like I ultimately see him staying and going past the deadline and then the Nets are going to have to re-sign him ultimately. You can't lose him for nothing. And then Cam Thomas is, I think, an under-discussed name ahead of the trade deadline because the Nets picked up his team option for next season, but – there's been well-chronicled inconsistencies and sometimes seems like approaching, obviously, discontent with his his role. And when you're talking about a guy that is the leading scorer on the team right now, he's approaching an offseason where I'm assuming that his camp is going to want to talk about a potential extension. Mm-hmm. Who knows what those conversations are going to look like with the Nets because it's been an interesting ride with Cam Thomas. Is he a guy that – you know, what could you see coming from those extension talks? I know it's tough to say right now. And do you think that he's a guy who they're going to listen on everyone, but is he a realistic, you know, trade candidate ahead of the deadline? I mean, it's hard to even say what the appetite would be around the league because he's such a polarizing player, but there's definitely the word. That's the word. Um, I was searching for it in my mind. But yes, I, I would say for Cam that 
for Cam Thomas, could he be a piece that maybe gets included in a trade if it needs to get pushed over the threshold? Sure. Standalone value, I think, is tricky at this point, just like I think figuring out what his extension number would be would be tricky. I one of the trickiest things in the league right now for a guy who has his ceiling but also has had his inconsistencies with where the Nets view him. Yeah, I uh, I agree. I got to, you know, I can't even begin. I've had these conversations with many people, and I, I can't even begin to come up with a ballpark range. I, I have I mean this in all sincerity and, and through, like, diligence of trying to find the answer to that question. I have no clue. <laughs> I have no clue. I, I Really, that tells you how wide the spectrum is for him. So we'll see coming up. And, yeah, Scott is a guy who's in the know. So when he says, I got no clue, a lot of people got no clue. And that likely might include the Nets and both sides of the equation. So that's, yeah, that'll be a really interesting situation to monitor with how the Nets handle him. He had some answers in shoot around yesterday where he didn't sound too enthused, got asked about the trouble, uh, the struggles. And, you know, we had the ain't shit funny graphics last season. Now we got asked the coach (laughs) when asked about the struggles. So, you know, he was asked if his late game minutes feel performance based or random. I, you know, he said random. I asked Jock Vaughn, who has said late game minutes are performance based. I asked him last night before the game, how do you feel about Cam saying they're random and why is there a disconnect there? And he gave me a pretty epic word salad that was <laughs> 400 words long. But, you know, and you tweeted it. I had to tweet. I mean, what am I going to – I can't tweet a little, and then it gets lost in translation, and then people are calling for his head. So I tweet the I whole thing. I was just with the video, and, but the, the, the replies of the scrolls were, were pretty funny, and I'm not people, reading all that. People are looking – you know, people are rightfully angry right now. They're looking for things to be mad at. You know, I, I, I'm I'm caught in the crossfire often. Don't kill the messenger. I'm just – I'm trying to deliver info <laughs> here. But – yeah, so Cam's conversation is it's going to be an interesting one to say the least at this trade deadline, particularly approaching this offseason. Last thing before I let you get out of here, Scott, I'm going to put you on the spot here. We've talked about around five players, so I'm going to run through those five players. And based on you know your a guesstimate, if you will, are they going to be on the roster, the Nets roster past the trade deadline? First okay. guy is Dorian Finney-Smith. No. Royce O'Neal. Honestly, 50-50. Spencer Dinwiddie. If there's something worthwhile, I think he goes. If not, they wait and look to do something with him similar to what they did when he last left the Nets. You think they would you think they'd actually realistically bring him back after the deadline? Can always sign and trade him. You don't think it's past the point of no return? It depends what the return is. But again, I, I just think that it, uh, you know, you can always sign and trade them. So if you feel like that's better than the offers that you have now and you're going to have more flexibility to do what you really want to do, what's the difference at this point given where they're at? Nick Claxton, next stays. guy. He stays. And Cam Thomas. Stays. Okay. And All I right. say Dorian, I say Dorian. 
not on the roster just because I think there's so much interest in him and, and somebody's yeah. got to make a move. And for a contender. I think someone's going to make it worth Brooklyn's while to, to, to trade for him. Yeah. That's, that's the feeling that I got and we're pretty aligned on those answers outside of maybe Dinwiddie, but yeah, Dorian's going to have so much interest. He's a guy who's 30 years old, even though he's in a little bit of a cold stretch as of late, he's, he shot the ball at a very high level and he's playing at one of the highest levels of his career over this large sample of work this season to, to not capitalize on that value with some, with where some teams are going to be looking to value him and try to make a push in the playoffs would seem would be a very interesting decision to say the least on the Nets part. Any parting thoughts on the Nets ahead of the, ahead of the deadline before we let you go here. Any parting thoughts. I'm sure I'll be writing about them a little bit coming up soon. So I'd keep tabs on hoopsite.com and follow at Mike A. Scotto. <laughs> they're gonna like they're gonna be active. The Nets are gonna be active. There we go. And I would say, what does that lead to? We'll find out, but they're definitely gonna be in conversation. So if you're a Nets fan over the next couple of weeks, there will be plenty of intrigue coming up before the deadline. There'll be plenty of intrigue, and Scotto just told you where to hear about all that intrigue, where to follow at Mike A. Scotto on Twitter. Hit his stuff up on Hoops Hype. Does some of the best work. If you're looking for an insider's perspective, a national insider perspective, Scotto is the guy to be following. So appreciate you for coming on, man. I will obviously see you at Barclays in the coming weeks leading up to the deadline. I'm sure you'll be making the rounds there doing your thing, but excited to see what you got on the Nets moving forward, man. Likewise, brother. I'll see you there. That does it for this episode of Believe in Nets on the Believe Podcast Network, your one-stop shop for everything happening across the sports and entertainment world. Hope you guys enjoyed the interview and the inside scoop with Scotto, friend of the pod, one of the best in the business to do it. If you guys like the pod, please make sure to like and subscribe to Believe in Nets on all streaming platforms, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube. Smash the like button. Leave a five-star review if you can and you enjoyed it. That really goes a long way. I'm Eric Slater, Brooklyn Nets beat reporter for ClutchPoints.com. You can find all my work on ClutchPoints.com as well as on my Twitter at Eric Slater underscore. Constant news, updates, analysis on everything Nets. I'll have more coverage in the coming weeks as the Nets look to break out of this now extended cold stretch and trade speculation intensifying. So we'll have more on all that coming soon. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.